Hi, this is Susie Rigdon, manager of Fall for the Book, a literary arts nonprofit and festival based here at George Mason University in Fairfax, Virginia. For more info on the 2019 festival, visit our website, fallforthebook.org. We're pleased to be hosting this episode of Mason Out Loud and are particularly excited about our guest, Ilya Kaminsky. Ilya Kaminsky is the author of Dancing in Odessa, which won the Whiting Writers Award, the American Academy of Arts and Letters Metcalf Award, the Dorset Prize, the Ruth Lilly Fellowship, given annually by Poetry Magazine. Dancing in Odessa was also named Best Poetry Book of the Year by Forward Magazine. Poems from his new manuscript, Deaf Republic, were awarded Poetry Magazine's Levinson Prize and the Pushcart Prize. Kaminsky was also awarded Lannan Foundation's Literary Fellowship, his anthology of 20th century poetry in translation, Echo Anthology of International Poetry, was published by HarperCollins in March. He teaches English and comparative literature at San Diego State University, and he's also on the board of Poetry Daily. Welcome, Ilya. Hello, it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me. So great to have you. So you've said, I want to dive right into to Deaf Republic. You've said in interviews that you often keep track of interesting lines and write from there. How did you begin writing Deaf Republic? Well, let me tell you a little bit about the book itself. Deaf Republic is a story in verse about a married couple during the war. Their names are Sonia and Alfonso. And Sonia's pregnant, and they happen to be puppeteers. The war happens, and um, people in town in response to a shooting of a young boy, people in town refused to hear the authorities. They refused to hear the government. Uh, as a part of protest, they make up their own sign language, which is not known to authorities. So that that is the story of the book. Um, my personal story is that I came to the United States in 1993, and I did not... Uh, have hearing gates before I come to this country. I am partially deaf myself. So growing up in USSR, watching um, the country fall apart, was an interesting experience because it was a very visual experience, not a ideal experience. And so for me, writing is often a language of images. As you saw in another interview, I say that I some, just collect lines sometimes and put them together, and sometimes the poem happens, and other times the lines go back in the bags. <laughs> um, but here I knew that I wanted to tell a story in poems, but every poem had to still remain a poem, not be in service of a story entirely. So that took a while to figure out, uh, but I enjoyed the trip. So I would love to hear the story of the sign language in the book. So you mentioned that the, the town creates their own sign language to avoid the authorities. What was the process? How did you create those signs and, and what was the thought process behind putting the images of the signs in the book? Mm -hmm. um, when I was a little uh, child, or not so little, a teenager in Russia, uh, my father tried to teach me sign language. Um, I was a very bad student, so I didn't really go anywhere. Uh, but even now, um, sometimes when I sleep, my wife tells me that I sign in my sleep. So it is clearly a part of who I am as a person. Um, but again, I'm a refugee. I um, both a part of my culture is former Soviet Jewish Russian person, and the other part since 1993 is an American. Um, so I try to negotiate this too. And that is also 
a part of this particular book, which I'll be happy to talk about a little later. As far as sign language is concerned, I was interested that you would imagine, and many scholars write about it, many people talk about it, the hearing people are usually wildly surprised when they realize that there is such a thing as a French sign language, a Russian sign language, American sign language. They think that it should be the same everywhere. <laughs> um, but in reality, there are very, very different sign languages. And I was interested, given that I am myself a person with different backgrounds, everything in this book I wanted to reflect that the kind of hybridity, the kind of what does it mean to be a refugee and write in the language of the refugee, what is the language of the refugee? Mm-hmm. Uh, which is not quite here, but not quite there either. The language in transit. And so sign language was that as well. It had to be part of more than one. Um, the process of putting it together was uh, very, very simple. You, I beat my head against the wall, and I was hoping that my <laughs> head wouldn't break, but the wall would. <laughs> All right, so speaking of putting things together, um, how did you settle on the structure of the book? You've got some book-ended poems um, that are very much focused on America, whereas the heart is in um, this, we're not quite sure where it is, but Vizenka. And you've got a lot of other things like the dramatist personae and all these different structures. So how did you settle on the structure of the yeah. book? As a matter of fact, it took quite a bit. The book took over 10 years to write. Um, I did have a manuscript for Deaf Republic probably three or four years after I started. And uh, there are published versions of uh, very different, at the time similar, poems to the book. But it never really felt quite right. It either felt like it was too American or too former Soviet. And it worked for that story, but I... I wanted to write a story of who I am, and I'm not a realist, I'm a fabulist, I speak in a language of fairy tale, but that fairy tale still had to reflect the reality of who I am as a human, meaning it had to speak both to the United States and Eastern Europe, um, which is why there were other versions of the stories that didn't make it. The stories that did make it, to my mind, centers on this very image that I mentioned, it, a young boy shot by police, and um, the whole town protests. Um, it's a very American image to have a young boy shot by police and lie in the street for many, many hours in silence. That silence is also very American silence. So I needed to find that language of images that would speak both to the United States and elsewhere. We do live in the empire at the very, very end of the period of the empire, I would say. And uh, I often wonder, what is the poetry for the decline in empire? We are still very much, unquote, unquote, Mount Olympus, thinking that we overlook the last the rest of the world. But the world looks back at us very, very directly. And that is also the question for a poet. What does it mean to be a lyric poet in a time of epic changes? Mm, interesting. 
When you were in an interview talking about learning to write poetry in English, you said, um, and this is a quote, learning to speak again can be erotic. The unfamiliar turn of the tongue, the angle of the mouth, the movement of the lips. Uh, in Deaf Republic, there's quite a bit of consideration of the erotic or bodies, both before and after the war or during the, the resistance. Um, can you talk about crafting the erotic or maybe it's juxtaposition with so much violence? Yes, of course. It's not just a question of the body, as such as I will get there. It is first and foremost a question of our relationship to our senses. Right now, again, in the United States, we live in a late capitalism. What does it mean? It means that you walk into the grocery store, and unlike the rest of the world, you can find anything in that grocery store, except that it doesn't have any smell or taste. Uh, you can get any vegetable you want, except that it will feel like soap. Um, and that is the other side of capitalism. It provides us with a lot of stuff and drowns us with stuff, but our senses are dull. Whereas in poetry, let's say I'm a great Spanish language poet, Lorca, he said poet is a professor of five senses. <laughs> he didn't say poet is a professor of creative writing. <laughs> he said five senses. And we are so alien from our senses um, right now, right here. Um, and for, again, for a lyric poet, what does it mean to be in a place where one does not live? dissolve on senses. And that, of course, leads to the question of the body. Um, the book does happen in a time of crisis. And in a time of crisis, what do we have? Uh, we don't have stuff anymore. All of that is gone. All we have is just our body. And if we don't take care of it, we have nothing. Um, so the body takes away heightened, amplified well. And yet, as humans, we seem to blame each other's bodies, we seem to shoot bullets into each other's bodies as if we are sitting for something that lifts in them, which is not really in them. They're just like any other person's body, we are not that different. So that relationship between senses and um, the absence of them, and also the what happens to bodies in crisis, uh, what it is that, what is what is the nature of the last things that we have when we have nothing else? Mm. What is the final thing that we cling to? And um, people cling to each other. That is what in the end the erotic is. There's a, a, just a few beautiful poems with Alfonso and Sonia together in the apartment. Um, the walls flashing and they're just together and they're just you know, with each other's bodies and appreciating their bodies. And that's a really special moment for them, especially considering what happens as the collection moves on. What I'm going to say now has nothing to do with erotic, but it does have to do with intimacy. Um, my father was a young child during World War II. Um, there was a woman who saved him and she had to stay in the apartment for a long time because he was a Jewish child. And what do you do with a restless young child? Well, she taught him how to tango for three years. They were tangoing in the middle of the World War II. So there are those little human moments. 
the intimacy takes all kinds of shapes. It doesn't have to be a radical intimacy. Uh, but what are we without it, war or no war? Mm, yeah. So, moving to a different sense, um, you know, a note at the end of the collection, um, you say, the deaf don't believe in silence. Silence is the invention of the hearing. Um, we talked a little bit about the sign language being present in the book and the images of the sign language, um, but also in the language. Can you talk a little bit about, I would call it the, the use of negative space or sort of talking around some of the most important sounds. So the townspeople, they choose not to hear. Um, and the first thing they choose not to hear is is the bullet that, that kills Petya. So can you talk a little bit about how dealing with this silence using language? Sure. Um, there are more than one way to answer this question. Um, if you have to talk about sign language, I'll also tell you a story. Uh, it's a true story. It really did happen. Um, researchers have put in the same room, a small room, not unlike this one, uh, four people from different parts of the world, let's say for the sake of this conversation, from France, Poland, United States, and Mexico. It might be from any other country. Uh, four people who did not speak each other language, four hearing people. And they left them in the room for six hours. When they come back, what did they see? People sitting in corners and being uncomfortable with each other. Then they did exactly the same thing with four people from four different countries uh, who did not speak each other's language, except they were deaf. They spoke different sign languages. They loved them for six hours, they liked the dogs, they come back, what did they see? They saw four people inventing a new language. So that tells you, yes, of course, I'm a poet, I'm in love with language, I'm in love with speech. But every poet will tell you that the negative space, so to speak, the limitations of language. Uh, when language is not enough, when you have to invent other structures, other metaphors, other ways of speaking, uh, to speak for something that is quote-unquote unspoken. Uh, we can say the word gunshot, we can say the word bullets, but that will only get us so far. How do you create the effect that is really visualized in the figurative language and also in the sensual experience? How do you create that sensual experience for the reader that they really feel like they're there in a room or that they're in the street when bomb is being blown out? And how do you do it in a way that doesn't completely flatten the reader, but allow them to experience it and survive? Um, and for that, you need what I would call different textures of language. The book is in verse, but it also has prose passages. Uh, it is full of images, but there's also a lot that's unsaid. Uh, there is a sign language, but it's also repeated through the book. In the beginning of the book, you know what the signs are because you have subtitles for them. By the end of the book, there are no subtitles because you already know the signs. So by the end of the book, the video should speak the language. So the video in a book, to my mind, in a good book, the video should be directly implicated. They should not be the outsider, they should be the participant. The story is, of course, a fairy tale, but it's a fairy tale about us. 
do you think that since you write in, in fairy tales and, and fabulism, does that allow you to write about some of these just really awful things in a way that doesn't flatten the reader but allows them to survive and allows them to experience this with you and with the characters but still like come out the other side? Yes, um, the whole movements in literature say magical realism and whole different kinds of poetic devices say metaphor. Uh, when you create a language for something that would be too heartful to say straight. And yet sometimes as a writer you have to be honest enough to say no to the prettiness, no to the poetry. Um, for example, when you describe a body of a boy lying in the street, for me, I have to say a body of a boy looks exactly like the body of the boy because to make it a metaphor would be to diminish it. And the idea is to balance the two, to create enough of fabulism to make the reality true and real and experiential. Uh, in this culture right now, right here, we are so isolated from each other that it is really easy for us to pretend like a lot of violence in America just doesn't happen because it doesn't concern us. So there is a very, very old equation in, in literature. Uh, Horace believed it, Robert Frost believed it, Nabokov believed it, and so forth. At first, you seduce the reader with beauty. You show them the beautiful world, the world of senses that they drown in town. And then you break their heart. And only after that you teach them a lesson. If you try to start by teaching them a lesson right away, you're, you're doing propaganda. Uh, you got to create the world. You got to make that world emotional. And only then you can try to have some kind of potential at wisdom. Mm. Wow. So, besides writing this beautiful poetry, you also work as an editor. In the bio that I read at the, at the start, mentioned you're an editor on the Echo Anthology of International Poetry. Can you talk a little bit about how has being an editor and working with the, these poems shaped your own writing? I say oh, work as an editor of poetry from around the world, and also working as a translator, uh, is really an education uh, for a poet. And let me perhaps talk a little more about translation first, and then go into editing, because the anthology you're talking about is anthology of literature from around the world. Now. When we speak about translation, the first thing that comes to mind is the so-called 3% problem. People who are in the field are very aware of it. It's a very common term. 3% problem is the following. If you live in Norway or if you live in France, probably 60% of literature published in your country is literature in translation. If you live in the United States, 3% of literature published here is literature in translation. What does it mean? It means that we don't know what is happening in the rest of the world. Statistically, we just don't have access to that information. And uh, when we say 3%, we mean 
everything, including microwave manuals and manuals on how to fix computers and, and put the nails in the walls. The actual literary fiction and poetry is far less than 1%. So that is a huge issue for us in American English. And so to my mind, if I had to come up with a metaphor, I would say um, translation is education for a writer because the writer stops looking in the mirror and starts looking in the window. Translator opens the window to the world. And uh, it is also an education because it teaches us attentiveness to language. It also teaches us what um, is impossible to English. It teaches us humility because Russian literature is much younger than English. Russian, the founder, so to speak, of modern Russian literature, Alexander Pushkin, uh, was writing in 1824. She was writing, she's now in the University of Dien What is 1824 for English literature? Byron was dead by 1824. And who is Byron? You had Shakespeare, you had Milton, and so, so, so many other writers. Um, so, one other international literature so different from ours, it forces us to expand our idea of what is possible in English. It teaches us to move our mouths in a different way, to make different sounds, to come up with different images, to have different sensibilities. And obviously being an editor and having access to literature from around the world also teaches one different sensibility. I couldn't possibly pinpoint a specific line or a poem that influenced me, but obviously just reading the material that's so different from our native literature was influential. Have you seen any emerging trends or recent trends or new themes in a lot of the international poetry that you've been reading that we should know about? Yeah, absolutely. Um, there's a lot of wonderful stuff no, no matter where you look. Let's say I come from Eastern Europe and for many years um, we considered Russian poetry of 1920s, Russian modernism to be defining future of Eastern European writing. After the war, after 1945, they changed it. Uh, Polish poets were a great influence. Why? Because um, obviously a lot of uh, Holocaust Auschwitz happened on a Polish territory. And the writers had to ask themselves, how do I go on? A great philosopher, German Jewish philosopher Adorno, said that it is immoral to write poetry after Holocaust. To which American poet Mark Strand responded, well, how is it moral to eat a sandwich after Holocaust? <laughs> and Polish poet responded to that by saying, well, asking this very question is a lyrical thing. It is something that lyric poets do. They ask questions of why am I alive? What is the purpose of life? And they answer with music. They answer with images. The answer may be very sorrowful or joyful or none of the above, but they still have a lyric impulse. Uh, so that for a long time was a defining future of um, that particular tradition. 
Uh, right now in that part of the world again, Romanian literature is very interesting. Why is it interesting? Novels and poetry very, very fascinating. Uh, partly because it is a country that was very much a part of Soviet bloc, and now it's a part of European Union. And it's a country in transition. It is really bringing the two completely different sensibilities together. So the writing is full of senses, full of wild, wild stuff, and yet it is very accessible to Western European thinking. So they kind of find a way to make a sandwich, so to speak, bring completely two different things and make a third. Um, on the other side, if you look at, um, I don't know, at China, when we think in the United States of uh, Chinese poem, we usually in classrooms in this country think of a very, very specific style, very finite poem that's very lyrical, perhaps about a snail climbing Mount Fuji, or uh, a poem about a great river, or something like that. Often the poems from China that are taught in this country are classical poems. Um, the traditions that would remind you of great Chinese painting that would be very fine in brush strokes. Or you would be thinking of the so-called misty poets, the poets uh, from 1990s who uh, were part of Tiananmen Square protests. And they protested the government propaganda literature by refusing to make sense. They wanted to write a kind of obscure poetry. And so it was very, very high style, but for a reason. And that is the poetry that was very popular. Beidou lived for many years, a Chinese poet lived for many years in the United States and California, and it was very popular in America. And we are still very much in conversation with that tradition. But hey, that was a very long time ago. The Tiananmen Square protest was... <laughs> 40 years, not 30 years ago. Um, poetry in China has changed quite a bit. Right now, if you open a wonderful book called New Kazei, New Kazei, um, anthology published of Chinese poets of the late 1990s, and you would find that uh, Chinese poets are influenced by Latin American poets. There's a wonderful characters in poems that remind you of Garcia Marquez. So it's completely different from our archetype of pigeonholing kind of thinking. It opens up what is possible when you marry Garcia Marquez and Chinese poetry. So there's a lot of wonderful stuff that's happening. Fantastic. Now all of our listeners can look up and read all those fantastic poems. Thank you so much, Ilya, for coming and sitting down with us. I was wondering if you would read a poem for us to close out our interview today. Thank you, and thank you so much again for having me. Here is a poem called We Live It Happily During the War. We Live It Happily During the War. We live it happily during the war. And when they bombed other people's houses, we protested. But not enough. We opposed them, but not enough. I was in my bed. Around my bed, America was fallen. Invisible house by invisible house by invisible house. I took a chair outside and watched the sun. In a six-month of a disastrous rain, in a house of money, 
In a street of money, in a city of money, in a country of money. Oh, great country of money. We, for divas, lived happily during the war. Thank you so much. That was Ilya Kuminsky. For more information on Fall for the Book, please visit fallforthebook.org. Thank you. Thank you.